0: Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. The sermon this morning is the call of Christ. Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those were sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, given to us in love for our good. Luke is the most comprehensive gospel account that we have. The Gospel of Luke details God's unfolding plan of salvation in the person and work of Christ. And Luke follows this up with the preaching of salvation in Christ through the apostles in the book of Acts. In his Gospel, however, Luke structures the account of the life and ministry of Christ from his birth, his ministry in Galilee, his journey to Jerusalem, along with his teachings, his passion, his resurrection, and his ascension. But by the time we reach this account, we find Christ at the very early stage of his ministry, having just declared in himself the fulfillment of the messianic mission of, Luke, of uh, Isaiah 61 And he begins to teach and testify to as much in his healings, his preaching in the synagogues, and casting out demons. Earlier in this chapter, he calls Simon, James, and John, and here he calls Levi. But the calling of Levi is a big deal. You see, Levi was a tax collector. At this time, Israel was an occupied nation and they paid for their own occupation through a system of taxation. As if sending your hard-earned wealth to the capital of an invading army wasn't bad enough, Rome hired Jews to collect this tax. And how these Jewish tax collectors would collect these taxes would be to set up random toll booths on the roads and bridges and then charge passers-by anything that they wanted. There was nothing they could do about it. Now, in any culture, tax gatherers would be despised and hated. But they were hated and despised even more so in Israel because these tax gatherers were considered traitors. You see, the Roman government had always had a difficult time collecting taxes from the Jewish people because many of the Jews had no qualms whatsoever with killing a Gentile who wanted to take their money. Eventually, though, the Roman government found a way to collect their taxes and to keep their tax collectors from being murdered. What they did was they hired Jewish people, to collect their taxes for them. Now, Jewish zealots who didn't mind killing a Gentile would never think of harming another Jew, even if this Jew was seen as a traitor. And the Roman government had a very curious way of paying these tax collectors. They told the collectors how much money to send in to the government, and anything the collector could get above and beyond that amount, they could keep for themselves. So the tax collectors tended to become greedy, resorting to what was tantamount to extortion. They would often use thugs to strong-arm people into paying, uh, that which was far beyond a reasonable amount. And because of this, they were despised, hated, and scorned by other Jewish people. Not only was Israel an occupied country, but the face of this occupation was one of their own. As you can imagine, tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low. They were traitors, sellouts. Christ called a man who was an outcast among his own people. You see, friends, the typical Jew thought of the restoration of the kingdom in a national sense. That is, the restoration of Israel's autonomy. That Christ would call someone as a disciple, one who actively participated and propagated their subjugation, was proof positive that Christ was a deceiver, an imposter, and an interloper. Friend, what we see of the call of Christ here in Luke is that it was nothing less than scandalous. The condition that we share with the original audience is that we too can have preconceptions of who we think are beyond the call of God. We can be scandalized just as much today as when the text was written that God would call people who we consider to be Beyond redemption, the socially ostracized, the dregs of humanity. In this sermon, The Call of Christ, we will examine three headings. First, the call. Second, the response. And third, the irony. The call. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, some commentators claim that Levi being called to follow Jesus was the result of some prior interaction that perhaps Levi had seen Christ performing miracles or maybe had heard his preaching and teaching around the region, but that's pure conjecture. What we read is that Levi was sitting at his table, going about his business, collecting taxes for the empire, and suddenly and abruptly, Jesus shows up and calls him. There is no evidence of any prior interaction between Christ and Levi. No isolated or series of meetings at some points in the past where Christ may have engaged Levi or Levi witnessed something that Jesus had done. We cannot speculate beyond the record. And what Luke writes is that Jesus, at the outset of his public ministry, started working miracles, calling disciples, and suddenly walks up to an unsuspecting Levi and utters two simple words. Follow me. We don't know what was going on in Levi's life. The ridicule that he had to endure living as a traitor among his own people. The hidden issues of his own heart. We don't really know. What we do know is that he was called by Christ. He was not seeking the Lord He was not diligently keeping ordinances. In fact, nothing in the text would suggest that he was particularly conscious of Christ. He was sitting at the table in his gainful employment, going about his life, when the Lord suddenly passed by and calls him. The Westminster Confession, chapter 10, puts it like this. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered by it. Friends, what we see here is that the call of Christ is without merit. There's nothing that we bring to the table, no inherent virtue within us, or value that we add to the kingdom that Christ finds so appealing and attractive that he has to have us on his team. Those of us who've been regenerated unto faith were just like Levi. We were minding our own business, living our lives when Christ made himself known to us and called us to follow him. This leads us to our second heading, the response, verses 28 through 30. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast at his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Friends, there's two responses that we read of in this section the response of Levi, the response of the Pharisees. We read in verses 28 and 29 Levi's response. He left everything at the table and followed Christ. Now, friends, we cannot overstate the gravity of this situation. Heretofore, Christ had called fishermen. They made a very humble living. And if this thing with Christ didn't work out, they could simply go back to doing what they were doing before. Levi couldn't do that. The Roman government had given him an extremely important task. Essentially funding the empire had he just got up and walked away presuming he had left the taxes he had collected that very same day sitting on the table and walked away. Had this venture with Christ not worked out, then going back to his lucrative life was not a possibility. He could very well have been imprisoned over the amount of money that the empire lost that day. Furthermore, cycling himself into the life of the local Jewish economy was not a consideration either, not having been a tax collector. But he got up from where he sat, left everything right there and followed Christ. Not only did he follow Christ, leaving his livelihood, leaving the entirety of what consisted of his life behind, but he prepared a feast in Christ's honor, invited other tax collectors to come as well. What we see here is the response of those who were called by Christ. Levi was called, and he responded three ways in obedience, celebration, invitation. When he was called by Christ, he immediately obeyed. He left his station and everything that constituted his life and identity right where it was. When he was called by Christ, there was celebration. There was joy at being summoned into fellowship and communion. With the Son of God. When He was called, He invited others to come and see and hear the one for whom suffering the loss of all things was but but a passing consideration. Not so of the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't join the company at Levi's house for the feast. We read the response of the Pharisees in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, friends, according to their own views, they would have defiled themselves as tax collectors would have been considered unclean. In no way would they have sat at a table with a man whom they considered to be a deceiver Along with a host of tax collectors, their response was contempt, judgment. It was an odious thing for them to behold and to them self-evident that Jesus was not from God. You see, friends, Pharisees lived very insulated lives. They felt society itself was evil and being exposed to it made one unclean before God. They viewed sin as being something external to the person, not internal. So talking to or touching a sinner was bad enough. But sitting at dinner with the sinner was tantamount to endorsing their sin and becoming guilty by association. So Christ, eating with sinners, by implication, made him a sinner as well. But Jesus forbids none to come to him. That the Pharisees were present shows this. But they were merely judging what was going on and not participating. You see, friends, no one of their own volition can come to Christ. It doesn't mean that they're forbidden to come. It means that in and of themselves, what people typically do is build a case in their minds, justifying themselves and impugning the Lord. Notice the Pharisees and scribes didn't even approach Christ. They saw themselves as not needing what Christ had to offer that they in and of themselves possessed a righteousness much greater than that which was offered to the likes of fishermen and tax collectors. The Pharisees had a response to the call of Christ. They absolutely did. And it was contempt. It was disdain. And it was judgment. You see, friends, everyone has a response to the call of Christ. Those who are called respond in obedience and joy. Those who are mere spectators and not recipients respond in utter disregard and unbelief. That Christ calls sinners is downright offensive. Just as the effect of the call of Christ is seen in the response, a rejection of Christ has a like response as well. What we've read here in this passage dispels two common straw arguments used to undermine the doctrine of effectual calling. First, that the doctrine of effectual calling keeps those from coming to Christ who would come that someone is desperately seeking the Lord for salvation and forgiveness and yet is flatly rejected. And second, that against people's wills, those who want no parts of God and who aren't actively seeking Him are dragged kicking and screaming to faith. To quote the confession again, All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually, savingly, to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. No one can be too wretched to come to Christ. I was probably the last person anybody ever expected to see come to faith in Jesus Christ from a very early age around 15 or 16. I determined that guys like me, we died in our youth. We didn't make it to our thirties, 25 and we'd been on this earth too long. And so I started living a very reckless and careless life. Uh, been to been locked up more times than I could count. The county jail didn't even count as lockup anymore. It was you had to be talking a, a couple of years for it to count. If it was a month or sit it out, then that didn't that didn't count. Um, by the time I was uh, by the by the time I was seventeen, I had a small group of friends that consisted of six of us. By the time I was twenty-two, four of them were dead. And it was just two of us. And uh, so at the age of 39, after living my whole life preparing to die, it suddenly struck me one day that I don't know how to live. And that scared me because all I knew how to do was live to die. I didn't know how to live to live. And after it was October 9th, 2000, October 4th, 2009, at four o'clock in the morning. I suddenly. Something happened where I, I, I called out to the Lord. I, I said, Jesus, if you're real, I'm going to need you to come down here and take me by the hand and walk me through this life because I have no idea what I'm doing down here. And Immediately. I was driven to the word of God and I started reading the scriptures and it was like now I had read the Bible before while I'm in jail because you've got nothing else to do. And so I had read it before and had kind of explained it matter of fact, but at this point I was reading it and it was like the words of Christ jumped off the page and it grabbed me and it shed light before and all of a sudden there was there was there was a way to live that I had never seen before. It was like a path opened up before me. And immediately I'd been doing drugs basically my since I was a teenager the desire for that vanished into thin- vanished uh didn't drink didn't no more running no more nothing and so all i did was just for eight straight months was just read the word read it cover to cover twice and was just so taken by it. well as time began to go by things began to change i was introduced uh, to a friend of mine, because I needed the Word of God to make sense how the Old Testament related to the New, and so I was introduced to a friend of mine to the uh, to, to to Edmund Clowney's lectures on on Westminster Theological Seminary and RTS on iTunes, and so I started listening to these lectures from seminary professors, and it was it began to make everything started to flow easily. And it was like I felt for the first time in my life that there, my life had purpose. And it was found in teaching and explaining the Word of God. Well, immediately thereafter, mind you, I was, i was like I said, I didn't come to faith till I was 39 years old. And so what I started doing was I started, it was like I had found it. And I wanted to tell everybody. And so... It was there wasn't a place I would go where if I'd see somebody because they weren't used to seeing me looking good, doing well and excited about life. I was there was always the dark cloud that I was the dark cloud guy. You know, those kids that were all black, you know, with the white makeup and the black lipstick and the black hair don't come out at sunlight hours. I was like that minus the, the white makeup. I never never got to that. But, you know, just all black all the time, all depressed consumed with German nihilist philosophies, given my life to nothing. And suddenly, you know, it was, you know, I gained weight. I'm still kind of, you know, but gained some weight and was happy and excited about life at church. I started being folded into the teaching ministry, of the church where I was at. And, every, and I remember one time I saw this. I was ministering the gospel to somebody. And... We were engaging and he was asking questions. I was explaining and this lady said, oh, no. She said, as much weed as you used to smoke, you don't need to be talking to anybody about the Lord. And I said, praise God. Say it again, lady. Say it again. (laughs) But she was offended at the call of God. People don't understand it when they see the work of the sanctification being done in the life of the believer. And. What we can be is too respectable to come to Christ. This brings us to our third heading, the irony, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In verse 31, we read of Christ's response to the complaining of the Pharisees and the scribes. Mind you, the Pharisees' question was addressed to the disciples in verse 30. They didn't directly question Christ. Nevertheless, it is Christ who is responding. It is the Pharisees who were attempting to affirm themselves as righteous by making a distinction between them and the tax collectors and sinners. In fact, it was the Pharisees who brought up the idea of sin in verse 30 in the first place. And what Jesus does is he picks up this notion and flips it on its head. Now, to provide a little context, at the time of Christ's ministry, there were two proper categories of Jews. The righteous And the sinners. The test of whether one was a righteous Jew or a sinner was the knowledge of the law of Moses. Nineteenth century Scottish theologian James Hastings writes Now the law of Moses was difficult enough of itself. But the lawyers of the nation had surrounded it with such a multiplicity of safeguards that for the bulk of the people, a thorough knowledge was hopeless. The righteous persons, accordingly, were scribes and lawyers. But theoretically, all those who were associated with the worship of the synagogues were reckoned of the righteous, however imperfect their acquaintance with the tradition of the elders might be. The priests in the temple at Jerusalem, although they stood apart from the Pharisees, belonged to the righteous class. The rest were sinners, and on them the righteous verdict was, This people which knoweth not the law is cursed. The very idea of reclaiming the lost was intolerable to the Pharisees. For there was one way of being made right with God, and that was in the keeping of the law. Anyone who did not know the law was beyond the possibility of salvation. Friends, the irony is uncanny. Those who thought they were righteous were suddenly faced with the reality that their perceived righteousness was not righteous at all. And that salvation, in fact, was being extended to sinners, that repentance is impossible without first seeing yourself as a sinner. The works of the law don't justify anyone and that God calls those who know that they are lost and he rejects those who think that they have earned grace. The irony is that those who are willing to walk away from their life follow Christ are the ones accepted while those who trust in themselves are rejected. Joseph Babinski was born in Paris in 1857. He went on to receive a medical degree to become known for his work in the neurosciences. It was during World War I when he had charge of the traumatic neurology cases in Paris when he diagnosed a previously undiagnosed condition called anosognosia, or as it's become called, it's come to be called today, impaired awareness. What he found was that he would treat soldiers suffering from some sort of paralysis but they were unaware or seemed to be unaware of the existence of the paralysis which affected them. With impaired awareness, a person suffers from an illness that they aren't even aware that they have. And this is common with those who suffer from schizophrenia and other neurological disorders where they live in a delusion and believe that their delusion is real. Such is the nature of trusting in one's own righteousness. It has those caught in thinking that they don't need Christ, just like an impaired awareness. One has to first see their illness before they can be treated. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. This shows that we cannot in and of ourselves repent. We have to be called to it. And if we've built a case in our minds that we're not as bad as the next guy or that we're just or that our good deeds have merited salvation, repentance will be impossible. The irony is that unless you can see your sin as it is, you cannot be healed. Those who think that they are worthy The grace of God aren't, and those who know that they are not worthy are the ones who receive it. In conclusion, Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, writes, Considered that God has nowhere in the scripture required any worthiness in the creature before believing in Christ. If you make a diligent search through all scripture, you shall not find from the first line of Genesis to the last line of Revelation one word that speaks out that speaks out God's requiring any worthiness in the creature before the soul's believing in Christ, before the soul's leaning and resting upon Christ. Why then should that be a bar and hindrance to your faith? Ah, sinners, remember Satan holds your unworthiness against you. Consider that none ever received Christ, embraced Christ, and obtained mercy and pardon but unworthy souls. What worthiness was there in Matthew, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, Manasseh, Paul, Lydia before coming to Christ, before their faith in Christ? Surely none. Jesus came to save sinners. He's called them to himself. He's not ashamed to be their friend. What we've read today is that Christ's call is not because of anything that the creature possesses. No talents, no abilities, but because that's just the kind of God that he is. Levi responded in obedience joy, inviting other sinners as well. What we've also read is the response of the Pharisees. Friends, if you're here, I can't assume that we're all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and have our faith in God. If God is calling you, then nothing that you have going on is worth allowing Him to pass by. If you're here, friends, and you've got someone in your life who seems to be the hard case, the one that the Lord can't do anything with, they haven't got it and they never will, keep testifying to the risen Lord. I'm standing here today as as a witness that God calls without any merit to the one being called. They can be the worst, most wretched person and God can still save them. Have you heard the invitation which the Lord extends to thee? It has sounded down the ages. Leave the world and follow me. Still the gospel call is sounding. Will you heed the earnest plea? Jesus calls you gently, sweetly. Leave the world and follow me. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call sinners to yourself. That you take those with no hope, nothing to offer, and you give them your very life. Father, I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees in in this, of what we've read, who would make determinations about who is worthy and who is not. Father, we pray that we'd be faithful to testify to the risen Lord and leave the results up to you. Father, if you could save us, you can save anybody. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.